0: Welcome back to True Crime and Headlines with Jules and Joe. This is episode seven, part four, which is our conclusion of our BTK Serial Killer series. In this episode, we are going to cover what, quote unquote, family man Dennis Rader was doing in his life while secretly living as the BTK Serial Killer. If you have not listened to parts one, two, or three, you wanna make sure that you go back and listen to those because they are essential in understanding The beginning of his life and knowing where we're going from there as well. Joe, you've not heard this story before, so I want to make sure you've got your fidget spinner with you.
1: (laughs) I'm ready. I've been dying to hear about his early childhood um, since we started this series. Absolutely. Okay. Our psychiatric nurse practitioner got her thinking cap on. Are you ready? Let's do it.
0: All right. Let's blow your mind. Before we hop into this episode, we have to take a second and thank everybody for supporting us and being there for us in this journey. We've been feeling so much love from everyone listening, and we wanted to let you know that you can go on to podcast.truecrimeandheadlines.com, click the heart icon in the upper right-hand side of the website, and buy us a coffee. That's the number one way to support us financially is just to buy us a coffee. We would love to have a coffee on you, we appreciate each
1: and every one of those coffees. This week, we need to give a shout-out to two of our dear uh, people in White House, Tennessee, Christina and Ori. Thank you for buying us coffees this week. That was so thoughtful, and, and really we really appreciate the support. So Dennis
0: Rader was born in Kansas and raised in Wichita with his mother and father and three younger brothers. So he is the oldest of four boys. And as far as all appearances go, he seemingly had a fairly normal upbringing and family. Both of his parents worked really long hours. And so the
1: kids were often alone for long periods of time. Not that abnormal, right? My sister and I were left alone for a long time. when My parents were at work. Were you guys latchkey latch kids? Uh, yes. No, return key kids? What is that No, called? it was latchkey. Latch I went key. there for a short time. I hated it. <laughs> you went where? <laughs> latchkey. Oh, wasn't there a daycare named Latchkey? Absolutely not. Where I'm from,
0: <laughs> I'm I not like, tracking.
1: Moving did on. you go to a dark
0: place in your life? I thought it's where you come home and you turn the latch, no one's home because your I parents are working. I swear there was
1: a childcare national childcare place named Latchkey. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> it sounds a little like an episode title <laughs> of a future series. <laughs> uh, we were not tracking. Oh, Nebraska.
0: Was there corn? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There is no place. Okay, go, go, go. (laughs) So, you know, they're alone for really long periods of time for boys, not supervised very closely. And Dennis Rader will later recall his childhood and report that as a child, he would often secretly hang and strangle stray animals. Okay,
1: wait, wait. So that is a um, symptom of conduct disorder, which we've talked about in previous episodes that Conduct disorder is sometimes a precursor to antisocial personality disorder as an adult. Not a good sign.
0: Dennis's father was a United States Marine. Young Dennis Rader would then join the Boy Scouts, which, Joe, you recall later he was very involved as an adult in Boy Scouts with his son's own troops yes. And the whole leaving the Boy Scouts trip to commit the murders. Mm-hmm thing so dennis was also not a very stellar academic student in school it was reported by the website psychology today that dennis was average to below average and that he quote exhibited an introverted and withdrawn personality end quote
1: interesting so he kind of has stand stood back and watched for some time yeah okay
0: Young Dennis was also very involved with his family's local church, a Lutheran denomination. This is also a theme which carries out into his adulthood. Adulthood, You'll recall the prior parts of this series that he intertwines
1: the murders in the church.
0: Exactly. And he was living his life very heavily involved when he was acting as Dennis. It appears that he leans into places of familiarity to hide in plain sight. We had the Boy Scouts. He had a family. He was heavily involved in a church. I mean, this is a common theme from childhood to adulthood. It's exactly what he did in his childhood, exactly what he continued to do in his adulthood, like a character, creature of habit.
1: I wonder if dad was the same way. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only type
0: of social interactions that Dennis participated in as a child was through church. Or Boy Scouts. I wanted to know what the mission statement was for the Boy Scouts, seeing as they were one of the biggest influences of Dennis Rader's upbringing. What type of lessons was being driven into Dennis as a young boy and thus continued to be passed on to his own son before Dennis committed murder and even during. So from the Boy Scouts of America website itself, this is their mission statement. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. The mission of the Boy Scouts of America is to prepare young people to make ethical and moral choices (gasps) over their lifetimes by instilling in them the value of the
1: Scout Oath and Law. What's a Scout Oath and Law?
0: I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Um, So this was their vision statement. Quote, the Boy Scouts of America will prepare every eligible youth in America to become a responsible, participating citizen and leader who is guided by the scout oath and law. This is where it also gets almost creepy. So the characteristics of a boy scout as listed on the boy scouts of America official website. So which is what this oath is and law. But before I read them, I want to point out how it almost seems like Dennis Rader took each one of these characteristics and played them out. Like he was a character in a movie or like he was wearing a human suit, a costume It's very interesting. Are you ready? Yeah. So the scout law, quote, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Hmm. Boy Scouts would also likely offer Raider a place of familiarity and confidence you know, and I think with familiarity also builds confidence.
1: Yeah. And it allows him to put that mask on too, of this um, independent, strong, um, good human.
0: That's a much better saying mask instead of human suit. (laughs) I don't know why I picture someone stepping up and zipping. I mean, it's
1: like a cloak, like a mask.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's, that sounds more technical.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. I do what I can.
0: (laughs) So he gained skills in trying multiple different types of knots while in the Boy Scouts, which huh. is also a skill that he continues to carry into his crimes. Yep. The bind part of the bind, yeah. torture, and kill. So once Dennis Rader was arrested, a forensic psychologist named Tony Rurek conducted Dennis Rader's initial assessment. Psychology Today shares what Mr. Tony Rurik concluded about Dennis's childhood. I'd love to
1: hear. It. I'm not a forensic psychiatrist. You were literally leaning forward on the edge of your chair, which is,
0: which is worrisome as your editor because I know we're going to creak and hit the table.
1: <laughs> but I'm I am not a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm really interested to hear what they said.
0: Quote, if Rader was completely honest, which he is not, I am sure that he would find some sort of childhood event that Rader immediately associated with feelings of sexuality. Somehow, very early on, Rader encountered an event where he immediately linked sexual pleasure with watching a live creature suffer and die. And after that first encounter, Rader probably began to work very hard to nurture those feelings, end quote. So when we have said previously in in prior parts of this series, you know, he's very open and he's very honest, but he's very open and honest because his back is against the wall the, exactly, yeah. and now he's he's saying how he does everything to fuel his narcissism. Listen to how great I executed this.
1: Yeah, I was just I was just thinking when as you were speaking that it's like this show off, like trying to get a reaction maybe from um, the jury or the courtroom versus trying to be transparent and honest.
0: Now, Dennis Rader could be considered a pathological liar. How could he not be in order to live this duplicitous life? Think Mm -hmm. about the level and level and level, like all the layers of lies and deceit to have to pull off for decades. His whole life,
1: his whole adult life.
0: Everything starting even in in childhood, Mm -hmm. the killing of the stray animals. Absolutely. Imagine if he had more resources as a child too. Is it possible that Dennis Rader actually doesn't remember any type of trauma? That could have occurred to spawn this or could he have just been born this way? These are really big questions to ask that not necessarily I'm asking you to give us answers, Joe, yeah. but I'm just saying like these are these are questions to hang in the yeah. air.
1: It's I mean, it's not um, impossible for the human brain to suppress trauma and not remember it. It's kind of a protect our, our brains are incredible, actually, um, and it's a can be a protective mechanism. Sometimes you don't have any memory of a trauma and different things can trigger that. And they they come up and it can be very disorienting and confusing. Um, I don't know. That's not what I heard the forensic expert say, that there was some sort of trauma. It sounds like, if I understood what you said correctly, it sounds like he really thinks that he derived sexual pleasure from one of these um, cases or incidents of torture to the animal um, and not necessarily from a source of trauma
0: yeah he was very specific about saying a childhood event not childhood trauma, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that because there is such a difference, an event where he realized, I'm deriving sexual pleasure from this versus something that happened upon him against his will. yeah, and it could be both, yeah, that's true, right. Mm-hmm. It could be anything, I guess at this point yep. when when we don't know, and then if we ever do know what can be trusted. Dennis's own omission. He says that he actually began to have sexual fantasies of dominance, bondage, mm-hmm. and torture from a young age. That doesn't surprise you, does it? No, not at all. You know, as young as elementary school.
1: Gosh, that's heartbreaking.
0: It, and it's so bizarre to us where this isn't our reality or our world or our mind to think, can a child who's never seen any of this how would they even know Mm -hmm. to I think it just it's hard for me to wrap my head around because I know children emulate a lot of behaviors that they see yes but I guess that goes back to what the what the person
1: evaluating Dennis Rader said yeah my big questions in my mind that I'm kind of thinking of right now is for one what was relationship with mom or primary caregiver like so I've I've mentioned before that um Sometimes children who did not get the nurture um, in early childhood, like really early childhood, that that need or that desire does not go away. So I'm talking about like holding baby close, eye-to-eye contact, um, skin-to-skin contact, just the nurture that mothers do in those early days, the need for that doesn't go away. And so sometimes children, when that is not met, they'll seek it in inappropriate ways later on. So I'm curious about primary caregiver role and attachment. But I'm also wondering about um, discipline with dad and being in the military. Was discipline more like punishment, um, corporal punishment, physical punishment, dominance there?
0: Interesting. You know, he also goes on to say that he was resentful of his mother because of all the time that they were alone and the lack of attention. So I, mm-hmm. I, you're right on with that. When he graduates high school in 1964, he goes on to attend college where he actually doesn't do too well, continuing with the theme of achieving mediocre grades. So there is also the theme of just kind of waiting in the middle, continuing on, flying under the radar, likely uh, on most people's radars. And he does end up dropping out of college. And a few years later, when he is 21, he joins the United States Air Force. And it's there that he spies on women getting dressed and he also does a string of break-ins to steal women's undergarments. Hmm. And he goes on to stay in the United States Air Force from 1966 through 1970. And just one year after he is back home, he meets a woman named Paula Dietz and marries her in 1971. Poor Paula. I know, I know. uh, We'll go into that in a little bit. I just, it breaks my heart. Born to an engineer and a librarian, Paula was also raised in Kansas in a religious household as well. And she went on to graduate with an accounting degree in 1970, and it's shortly after that when she meets Dennis Raider. and they weren't together very long it's actually Joe it's less than a year from when they meet to when they end up getting married in 1971. how long did
1: it you take to meet and get married you
0: forever <laughs> I make very rational thought- out choices I got a puppy today by the way. <laughs>
1: I really did. I'll post a picture of him. Julie and her husband could not be more different than my husband and I. We like (laughs) thought about getting a dog for like, I don't know, six, nine months, looked at like 27 different dogs before we were ready to agree and commit. When you know, you know. (laughs) Julie goes yesterday and has a dog today. (laughs) I think. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's so cute. We had like a cost-risk-benefit analysis of our marriage and getting married. Julie and John got married in a like, week. Did you really?
0: You were <laughs> Pretty much. so nerdy. Did you make it on Excel? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Man, I was just free that weekend. I was like, cool, let's, let's do it. No one else asked. <laughs> so just two years later in 1973, Dennis graduates from a community college with an associate's degree in electronics, which helps him in his job at
1: ADT Security, later on installing security systems. I wonder if there was any forward thought in that, thinking that that would give him access. I wonder if that was like a subconscious thing or happenstance or if there was thought into that. Opportunity. Huh.
0: He would have that job from 1974 through 1988. And it's not lost on us that Dennis Rader was installing many home security systems for Wichita residents who were scared about the BTK killer entering their homes. So in 1973, Dennis and Paula Rader, why do I talk like, it's so, thanks for not making fun of my hands, but I have to like physically bounce out the words with my right hand. It looks like an
1: ostrich. You're
0: Doesn't bouncing it? out the words? What you're doing. Kind well, I'm like, no, are you assessing me now? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I gotta talk like Diaz. Awesome. Okay. Also in 1973, Dennis and Paula Rader would welcome their child together. Their first child was a son named Brian. And that brings us full circle back to part one the beginning of Dennis Rader's time as the buying torture and kill serial killer, aka B T K. As just a few months after the birth of his first child, Dennis Rader would commit his first murders, the Otero family members, Julie, Joseph, Josephine, and Joey Jr. in January of 1974. Y'all. How many months old was his baby at that point? His son was only three months old. Oh my gosh. When Dennis Rader... Would go out and kill the Oteros. Wow.
1: Not only kill, but the stalking phase, the I and mean, the whole project.
0: Oh yeah. His whole PJ was the stalking, the trolling, the stalking, yeah. the planning it out. Yeah. His entire yeah. While they're about to have a, a baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder, was that a trigger? In 1974 through 1977? So Dennis Rader was continuing his work as the ADT security installer, and during this time, Dennis Rader as BTK, okay, here we go, kills the four Otero family members, and Catherine Bright in 1974. Mm-hmm. And it's not until 1977, recall, that he kills again, and this time he takes the lives of Shirley Viana, Nancy Fox. Now, you know, he goes dormant from 77 all the way through 1985. So what was he doing from like 78 through 85? Yeah. Well, Dennis and Paula go on to welcome a second child in 1978, a daughter named Carrie. So he is actually really busy Mm -hmm. with two children and he's going back to college. Okay. So in 1979, he graduates with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. Oh. And in 1985, he takes the life of Marine Hedge. Ugh. And in 1986, he takes the life of Vicki Wegerl. And in 1989, Dennis changes jobs and is now working at a, as a census field operation supervisor. So just fewer than two years later, he takes on another job of authority as a Park City compliance officer. Now, remember, Park City is the suburb of Wichita where his family lives. And get this, he also becomes a dog catcher. And it's also in 1991 that Dennis Rader kills his final victim, Dolores Davis. And when reading about the case, you know, the time between Rader's killings are often referred to as his, quote unquote, dormant times. However, an Oxygen.com article quotes a professor of psychology named Catherine Ramsland. She actually wrote the book, Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. And she's quoted by saying, quote, they were detailed lists with names of projects, dates, locations, circumstances, things that would have happened to people had he had the full amount of time that he needed and they were home, she said. It's not like he was inactive during those periods of time. It's that he didn't have all the right circumstances to go forward with something. Again, so intentional. Exactly. So it's just... He wasn't carrying them out, but he was still pursuing his project, his yeah. PJs. But he was busy with going to school and his kids. He wasn't able to be duplicitous to the extent of his desires because he was very busy on one yeah. side of that.
1: More evidence that it, it's not a um, dissociative identity disorder
0: Now, you scenario. had talked about the one she talked about this, you guys, in the last part as well. And it's very insightful. So if you haven't listened to that one, I would really recommend to go back. I learned so much from Joe each episode as well. And one of the things that really stood out to me from what you taught us about disassociative personality disorder, identity disorder, I- identity disorder. Um, so was the fact that he remembers both sides.
1: Yeah. Usually there's a lapse in memory there if it's truly a Dissociative um, episode. Dissociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. DID. DID. Yeah. Dennis would also bind
0: himself during these times in between killings. What? Yeah. He would bind himself. He would dress in women's garments. Did and his wife he, know? No. Paula didn't know. Any of this? Nobody knew. Nobody. No, nobody
1: in his family, Sorry, What else his did he wife do?
0: didn't know. You were going
1: to say more. This
0: <laughs> poor Paula. I'm not, now I'm
1: Gosh. like, <sighs> so like, it's not like bondage or that was part of their sexual relationship. He did this on his own. I don't have the answer to that question. It's a good
0: question to ask. Yeah. I don't have the answer to that. Uh, Paula has remained very private. Uh, <sighs> Go, (laughs) Paula. That's what I... Good gosh, right? Um, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know if that, that answer is out there. It's a really good question, though. So he dresses in women's garments, and he strangles himself with rope. And he often... You know, oftentimes, he ties himself up to take photos of himself. And it was reported that he was actually trying to emulate his prior victims... And this brought on sexual pleasure for uh-huh. him in between killings, oh, like scratching that itch, yeah, okay. Where are all these pictures at? For one? <laughs> <laughs> well, the pictures were later found in uh the garage and also a hole in the floor of their house, which I'll go into.
1: okay. And also does he re- derive sexual pleasure from his relationship with his wife? I wonder. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I mean,
0: if this is what his sexual pleasure is, would there ever be like another form of intimacy? Can Is he capable of emotional uh-huh. intimacy? According to his family, the answer would likely be yes, because when he was Dennis Rader, he was dad. And I'll go into that in a little bit. I've never seen you make that face before.
1: <laughs> I wish I could.
0: Freeze it for everybody to to see these photos along with his kill kit items. Suit, remember, he took souvenirs. Yeah, his souvenirs and victim photos would all go on to be discovered in different locations. So this is what you asked a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. He also he, he later tells authorities of multiple hiding spots to find each item. They're not just. In his home, like, they're all over Park City. He has multiple random hiding spots. He does, however, admit that he had so many hiding spots that he couldn't even recall where everything was. Oh, my gosh. Remember, this was the span of three decades.
1: Again, this is more of, like, looking for a reaction.
0: Rolling Stone magazine reports that, quote, he kept them in hiding places throughout the county, some in his home and church, others buried or taped bridges. And he called them, quote, hidey holes. That's so creepy. And while investigators uncovered many of the souvenirs he took from his victims, even Raider doesn't remember exactly where all of them are anymore. End quote. Also, he called his penis Sparky. Sparky time is what he would say about it. Yeah. That's that's really disturbing. I know. I'll never. Wasn't that the nickname? I don't want to ruin that movie for everybody else because that's a good movie. So I'll keep that to myself. Gross. What I find most disturbing is that he kept so many items in his own home. Joe, it was under the freaking floor of his home. Like he had a hole, like he yeah. made a
1: hole? He had a hidey hole <laughs> in his home. Oh my gosh. What is Just a rug over it? And I like, don't
0: know the extent of <laughs> it, but it, don't look in that hole. You don't need anything in there. Golly. And then his, in his own family garage. You know, this is where the kids grow up yep. learning to walk why did I want to cry there? It's so heartbreaking. I yeah. just, I'm feeling a lot of, I don't think I'm capable of empathy for it, this situation because I have nothing to derive, like I can't connect to it. Professor of psychology, Catherine Ramsland also goes on to analyze Raider by explaining how she believes that it was Raider's jobs with some type of authority, which contributed to his ability to take really long periods of breaks in between the killings. And his own photos of himself helped scratch that itch all while he admits that he never stopped trolling. So really in he, in his view he was doing everyone a favor by keeping those projects going, trolling and stalking and by dressing up and taking photos of himself because it meant he wasn't out there killing.
1: I mean, I admittedly would rather him dress up and bind himself than go kill somebody, but my goodness, just he's just so sick.
0: And all during this time, he is carrying out his facade of being a good husband, a good employer, a rule follower, and enforcer,
1: and the deacon of their church. Trust no one, again, moral of the story. But was he
0: any? Of those things. So his own daughter, Carrie, considers
1: her father a psychopathic narcissist. Yeah, talk about a rupture in relationship. I don't think there'd be any coming back from that.
0: Now, we do know that there's no such thing in the mental health field called psychopath anymore, correct, Correct. to be diagnosed. So it's antisocial personality disorder, Mm -hmm. narcissist, (laughs) Although she recounts how she had a great childhood and he taught her her ethics and morals and her kindness, according to her, she goes on to explain that the way we can best learn about killers like her father is by studying them.
1: What did she go on to study? Well,
0: this is a big reason she wrote her own book titled A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. So here we go. This is how BTK was caught before he was able to kill again, which was his plan. So we are now caught up to where we left you in part three with the Wichita Eagle publishing a 30-year anniversary article on the 1974 killing of the Otero members. You remember that? Which includes extensive writings about BTK. And the BTK identity was still unknown. And it's on March 17, 2004, that the Wichita Eagle receives a letter with the return address of the name Bill Thomas Kilmore. The initials BTK. Inside the letter were items seemingly included to prove that the correspondence was indeed coming from BTK himself. Here's what was inside. You ready? Mm-hmm. There were three photocopies of Polaroid photos of the ones he took of Vicki Wiggurl along with Vicki's driver's license. And to sign the envelope, he did his simple signature, which he has done in the past in correspondence with them. And of course, the letter gets sent off to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where they in turn release information to the public via the media and the Internet about the BTK case gearing up once again.
1: Again, risky
0: behavior. Fingerprints? Hello. It's also noted that at the time of the Wichita 30-anniversary coverage of the Otero family and like the BTK hysteria, that a book reporting on BTK was also released. It was titled Nightmare in Wichita, The Hunt for the BTK Strangler by lawyer Robert Beattie. And it was said to have angered BTK as he felt that people were telling his story for him. And it was time for him to come back out to continue his own story. So that's like a telling side of
1: narcissism. Yeah. Right, <laughs> <Rachel>. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Tell me your are narcissist story. without telling me <laughs> you're narcissist. About seven weeks later on May 5th, 2004, the BTK killer cannot stop himself from feeding into the fame resurfaced and proceeds to then send local news station, K-A-K-E-T-V, a freaking puzzle. The puzzle included words that described Dennis Rader's process. So words such as prowl and also a list of what seemed to be disguises such as servicemen. You know, all the things he dressed up as to get into people's homes. Mm-hmm. What's even more odd is it even included four individual numbers, which they would realize after Raider is arrested are the actual numbers of his home address. Why would you do that? CNN reported that assistant managing editor, Timothy Rogers said, quote, it could be the killer's way of saying, hey, it was all there in front of your face. You just didn't see it, end quote. Look how smart
1: I am. Yeah, again, narcissism, but like, it's almost like he wants to be caught.
0: Fast forward 7 months to December of 2004. BTK starts amping up his public messages and packages. He leaves a Barbie doll which he has strangled and attached to a part of a PVC pipe, details which nod to the terror murder of young Josephine who was hanged from the pipes in the basement of her home. He seems to be adding more and more clues for what? Is he enjoying this cat and mouse game with authorities? That's what I think it is, Joe. I think it's enjoyment. I wonder
1: if he gets any sexual pleasure out of seeing emotional reactivity. Because like you people who, for example, like masturbate in public, like sometimes people can derive sexual pleasure pleasure from reactions. Interesting.
0: If they like the thrill of sneaking or trying to get away with it. BTK leaves a plastic bag wrapped in rubber bands in a local park. A man out walking finds it, takes it home, and opens it out of curiosity. Inside is a driver's license of Nancy Fox. He delivers the package to TV news station, who, in turn, rightfully turned it over immediately to the police. This is the confirmation that Nancy was BTK's victim. And this was BTK actually corresponding with them. Just a few short weeks later, in January of 2005, BTK sends a postcard containing more clues. This time, it was a postcard sent again to the news station with instructions on where to find other packages. The police were able to locate the items, and inside the first package, they found descriptions that of the Otero murder that only the killer and police would know. And he also asks if they found his other message he previously left at Home Depot. Not having known about this one, the police head over to Home Depot. And after questioning the employees, it comes about that one worker did find a cereal box in the bed of his truck, assumed it was trash, throws it away. But luckily, the police are able to recover it from this man's trash. And it's this message which will lead to BTK's capture. So what is the message? Well, BTK asked the police if they would be able to communicate with the police via a floppy disk without tracing it back to him and for the police to reply to him by putting an ad in the paper, if it's okay with the words, quote, Rex, it will be okay, end quote. And this is why I am left to wonder if Dennis Writer really did believe the police genuinely enjoyed this game. That same month, police take out an ad in the newspaper, just as instructed, and on January 28, an undercover detective has the Wichita Eagle newspaper print the following ad. Quote, Rex, it will be okay. Contact me. P.O. Box First Four reference numbers at 67202. A floppy disc arrives to the police, they immediately hand it to their cyber cop specialist who gets to work to access the floppy disk's metadata. Now each disk has something called metadata, which is basically an identifier for users with the disk. And the metadata on the disk was obtained. And it said the last place it was used was by a quote, Dennis at Christ oh. Lutheran Church at a park and at a Park City library. The police were quick to discover that the church's president was a man named Dennis Rader. And within the next nine days, authorities work behind the scenes to gather as much information on Dennis Rader as they can. And you'll recall, Joe, in the past parts of this episode that we covered, like parts one, two, and three, the BTK killer left behind physical DNA evidence which was collected and stored securely throughout the years. The task force titled, what did you say? Billy badasses. <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> the task force titled the Ghostbusters was ready to bring Dennis in after confirming his DNA match. So how did they get a DNA match without tipping Dennis off that they, I knew who he was. And this might be controversial or or not. I mean, I am not sure, you know, where anyone listening stands. I think it's enough to go, hmm, was that ethical? Or, hmm, wh- where do we stand with this is what I'm wondering. Uh, so the police obtained a warrant to get medical records from BTK Dennis Rader's Daughters University, where five years prior, she had a pap smear. Hmm. And it's on February 25th, 2005, the BTK killer is finally stopped. Now, she doesn't willingly give her DNA, nor was she asked at the time either. So the police were able to secure, obviously, the warrant to get her records. And right. She does not have to be involved in that. At, I believe there were a few reports that were incorrectly circulating that she gave her DNA. But no, they they took it from a pap smear. Hmm. And that's not all they stopped. The subsequent capture of BTK Dennis Rader meant that any planned future PJ's projects were also stopped. But did he have any more murders planned? Absolutely, he did. On June 27, 2005, Dennis Rader pleads guilty. And on August 18th, 2005, Dennis is sentenced to 10 consecutive life terms in prison where he remains today. So one common question that I saw very often in my research for this case was, how did the family not know, right? BTK's daughter, Carrie, recalls in her book later how looking back, there were some signs, but overall, he was 95% an amazing dad and father. She does recount how one visit home from college, they were all at the dinner table And her father lunged across the table at her brother during a big argument and started choking him out until he turned white.
1: Oh, my gosh. I wonder how old the kid was at that point. And the set was Brian. So he
0: was older than Carrie. Oh, geez. And aside from that, she doesn't actually recall many other signs. And she says if anyone in her family believed that he could have been the local BTK serial killer, they would have immediately told the authorities. Carrie goes on to explain how hard it was to believe that BTK was the same man as her father. The trauma and PTSD that his daughter has shared about going through is immense, and she is living her life the best way she can amid, you know, the reality of the monster who she now knows was her father, and she hopes that people will be able to learn from her story and her experience as the serial killer's daughter for one purpose, to stop people like her father in the future and to end the murders of innocent people. This has been True Crime and Headlines. And wait, this- wait, wait, wait. Not to- <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what's wait, wait, Oh, what's Wait,
1: Okay. <laughs> There's so much to say here, um, but I'm just going to start with, we still don't know much about his early childhood. Like, I feel like that's just very much glossed over. He said it was like, Okay, mom and dad worked a lot. He was resentful of mom. But there's just, there's so much to be said about kind of how this all came about. Do you see parallels with uh, Clyde Barrow?
0: So we're talking about our first episode, the Bonnie and Clyde story. Clyde Barrow also tortured and killed animals. And he was also unsupervised quite often. Yeah. And he also... Killed many, many people. It's very interesting how, you know, what you say, it really does end up making sense. Yeah. For, for antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. starting with, yeah.
1: Oppositional defiant conduct disorder and a post. Yeah. And a personal antipers. That word's hard. Antisocial person. There you go.
0: <laughs> there are the books that I referenced throughout this If you are interested in digging deeper and learning even more, obviously we have four parts of this and we still haven't scratched the surface of all of the information. So if this is interesting to you, if criminal psychology is interesting to you, go and read these books. There is a book that BTK participated in as well with one Mm -hmm. of the psychologists. So I would absolutely go to our website. I presume that he got divorced. Oh, yeah. His wife, Paula, was granted an emergency divorce. Okay. Immediately. Typically, you have to wait a long time. I think she got it that same day. Oh, okay. I want to encourage you guys to never stop asking questions. Never stop learning. Stay curious. This has been True Crime and Headlines, and this concludes our coverage on Dennis Rader The BTK Serial Killer, episode seven. And we will actually be taking the rest of June off while we work behind the scenes on a few really big cases for you guys. We will return on July 5th with episode eight, Unsolved, The Murder of Grant Solomon. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and say hi to us there. You matter, you're loved, and your butt looks great.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. We love you guys. Bye. And late I do see. Be. My mama is a podcaster. My too.